Hi, and welcome to the Dewing Grain podcast. Dewing Grain are independent and local grade traders. From seed supply to harvest movement and storage contracts, they can offer you the best strategies to achieve the highest prices for your harvest. Each week on our podcast, we begin with the Dewing Grain Market Report, giving you up-to-date information and analysis, followed by Farm Chat, where we catch up on agricultural issues with a guest or two while sampling a beer. Andrew's favourite bit. So let's start with Andrew Dewing and this week's Market Report. Welcome to the Market Report. What follows are my thoughts or gut instincts on what the market is going to do. It is not an instruction to trade. Any decision to trade is yours. Market Report for week commencing 23rd of November 2020. Right, it's been a pretty exciting week on several levels. Let's start firstly with oilseed rape. We've talked for a long period of time about our target being 350. We did lots of trades at that level. Everybody's happy. It's a good rise from harvest, sort of 310 value. What's happened since the oil market is on fire? It's now trading probably 360x for Feb and an ever upward moving oil market. You've got palm oil at contract highs. You've got soya going through the roof, trading at $12, heading towards 13 It is a very, very firm market. And the golden thing that's happened to that market is the vaccine. All of a sudden, the demand for biofuel is expected to be higher. The whole of the world is feeling a whole lot better about the future. And it's the vaccine that has triggered this movement. Now, you can't predict when a vaccine is going to come along. And certainly none of us expected it perhaps to be this side of Christmas. All of a sudden, it's a game of who's got the highest percentage performance of the vaccine. You know, you started with the Pfizer one at 90% and the Russians came in at 94 And now the Oxford are coming out saying 95%. Each one's better than the other. But... It is a phenomenally positive thing for the future and consequently lots of markets, especially oil, has gone up. Moving on to other commodities, we've kind of had a long period of market being very firm in the UK for feed wheat anyway because of the very small crop as we've discussed many times over. It is quite a sensitive market at the moment and the futures market is technically too cheap. If you look at the May futures at 193 and you consider some of the delivered prices that are going on for perhaps December or January, if you took a pound a month off, going backwards, so May through to December is £5 less, that would make futures 188 Sellers are asking for 196 and buyers are bidding 192 delivered. But somewhere between those two is a price. That's a very, very big premium over the futures. So the futures having been the sinner of being too high for a period of time is all of a sudden actually looking very cheap. Now, the dynamic of that is there is no physical wheat coming forward in enough volume to satisfy everybody for sort of deck and jan and the consumers that need to get those periods covered. Whilst at the same time, there's a subdued kind of, seems to be a few sellers about in the further forward. Now you have to question, obviously bearing in mind that we have Brexit, which we are one month away from the day pretty well, and we still don't know what we're going to do. In fact, they've stopped negotiating because they've got COVID in the room. So having been quite optimistic over the last 10 days and since Biden's victory that they're going to be forced into some form of deal, the last 24 hours or 48 hours suddenly feels like, you know what the Europeans don't seem to want to do it and we're blaming them it's all their fault for being difficult etc etc and the French demand that they should be fishing off Cornwall 
etc., that the inevitable, we voted to leave and get out of the union and now we're blaming them for being difficult sort of moment, which we did predict. Okay, maybe they are negotiating very hard and so are we and we're not going to get somewhere. Well, we certainly haven't got there soon enough because if you're trading any product and you don't know the outcome of January the 1st in detail, you can't trade it. So let's assume we leave with no deal, which is quite kind of, I think, brave because there probably will be an 11th hour deal. Will we be importing cheap Black Sea, if there is such a thing, or Australian wheat in the new year? Because the price of Aussie wheat, there's a big crop over there. It's becoming more and more competitive. I don't think it's at the level yet. And I don't, I'm never going to be involved in that process. It's too, too much of an international trade for us to, to get involved with. And we haven't got a deep water facility to cope. So we're going to be shirt tailing other people. But are we going to be importing Aussie wheat? in the new year and if that's the case then the tail end of this year for the uk farmer is actually bearish you've got to bear that in mind you can't just say it keeps going up and these old merchants say they ripped me off by buying it 180x farm or whatever was paid the reality is it's come up an enormous amount of money and it just looks like it's going to keep going in that direction everyone's talking about 200 pounds a ton as being oh i'll sell it when i get to 200 there's no guarantees, and I think you've got to temper your unbelievable bullishness to say, well, okay, what's the risk on the downside? And I think that that's the reason you don't sell it, you keep playing the game, is because I don't think there's much of a downside. And if it went down to 170, would that be a disaster? Of course it wouldn't. It'd be a brilliant price. So I think farmers are going to continue to hold the grain. I don't think there's going to be a big volume of grain coming forward. And I also don't think there's many merchants who are particularly long of grain. So I I think it's going to remain squeezed in the short term until we get a catalyst moment which pushes the market down. The other thing that could push the market down is the UK flour miller. Now, I said last week about them having done a very good job. They have. They've done a very good job for themselves. They haven't done a very good job for the UK farmer in the context of right now there is many contracts being rolled into December and into January because they're stuffing their little faces with imported wheat. They are ramming European wheat into every orifice they can in order to get the right side of the line ready for December the 31st, which is sound, good tactic. It'll maintain a a lower price for them in the long run and it guarantees them supply. But it has been at the expense of a whole load of contracts that are done with UK farmers. So the UK farmer is being asked to carry wheat from one month to the next. And lots of that wheat has been bought at a lower level than the market is, which is creating a phenomenal headache for some of the merchants. So some of the merchants are having to forego the premiums in order to protect buying cheap wheat. And they're technically losing money in that process. So if the farmer's got a good relationship with the merchant and there's a kind of fairness gene running between both parties then it will be carried and we will sort of do what the miller wants us to do. But let's bear in mind that there has been so much imported milling wheat that is eventually going to create a little slug of, I don't know, soft wheats and hard wheats that had a premium on them being pushed down back into the feed market. Anyway, that's quite a rant. Let's go on to feed barley. Really firm market. There's been some boats done by a number of people in recent weeks. The pan's been up and down and during that period... Some big deals have been done. So you see feed barley prices probably going into the new year now. I'd expect to be paying something like 145 
X farm for sort of March time, something like that, Feb March. And I think the way people are competing for it this side of Christmas, there's there's a few people with a bit more tonnage to do to fill boats. So there's a bit of competition, and it's in excess of £140 a tonne, which, bearing in mind where we started harvest and bearing in mind where malting barley was, I think that's a fabulous rise in prices. Yes, it's a crazy discount to feed wheat, but don't forget, feed wheat is in deficit, and barley is massively in surplus. So let's... Make sure we clear the barns this year of barley if we can. Get everything out, get all the wheat out, go into next harvest with everything sold. And then maybe, I think the dynamic for next harvest, if that is what happens, and I believe it will be, the dynamic will be that the farmer will have, again, quite a lot of control of this market. There won't be carryover or excess carryover. There will be, therefore, empty barns. And there isn't the 16 million tonne wheat crop that everyone's been talking about. It's going to be perhaps 14 million tonnes, maybe a bit less. And if that's the case, then and I base that on less acres having gone in the ground and some of the conditions the stuff's been planted into is not going to yield it, you know, very well. It's going to be okay. It's going to be a big spring crop, lots of wheat in that, I suspect. How many acres of spring barley? Separate issue completely. That could overcook the malting barley supply, but you know, talking about how the spring planting period's going to go this early is a bit brave. So that's going to keep floating along at a reasonably high price, encouraging people to plant. And then if there's too much goes in the ground, then the price will collapse. But the dynamic of the underlying feed market is if the farmer can kind of get into control again and not release grain, then I, I'm afraid I think we're going to go for a very similar scenario to this year. Again, depending on whether we're importing other stuff really cheaply because the government's negotiated something that allows that to happen. But as I say, that's five weeks away and we still don't know, which is kind of a little bit unfair on anyone who's trading. That's quite a not-taking-a-breath market report this week, wasn't it? Right, we've got uh, the second bit of Jeremy Savage today, which is um, Jeremy talking from kind of his Waring and Savage days onwards. And I found that conversation fascinating, and I know a number of others did as well. So we polish off the conversation with Jeremy, and then a week or so's time we'll have another conversation with him where we talk about the market. So enjoy. Thank you for listening. Please remember that any decision to trade on this opinion is yours. The Dewing Grain app will keep you updated with real-time industry news, data analysis and insights into the market, giving you all the information you need to make informed trading decisions. A commodity selling feature enables you to source prices and receive direct offer notifications informing you on what Dewing Grain are looking to buy and at what price. Search Dewing Grain on the App Store or Google Play to download and with all of these features in your pocket, you'll have more time to sit back and listen to our podcast. To set up a trading account with us, call 01263 731 or email info at And now it's time for Farm Chat. We rejoin our conversation with Jeremy Savage this week, uh, where when I first knew Jeremy, he was at, at his own company called Waring and Savage. And uh, we jumped straight back in there with me asking him what happened next. So 
from Waring and Savage. Mm-hmm. And what happened next? I mean, this is in my time, and I can't remember the... Yeah, well... you went on your own again? Waring and Savage was not too successful, really. We made a living for a while, but you didn't need many hits. You do have things that go wrong sometimes. Well, if you're trading in the old-fashioned sense of taking a position, buying yeah. something, trading it, and then trying yeah. to sell it on, and the market going yeah. with you or against you. Yeah. Yeah, a principal trader is different to someone's kind of dancing between the two, yeah. I never mean, really committing. You see... I was brought up in the tradition that you put your neck out. Yeah. You looked at a sample and said, I'll take that at so-and-so. Yeah. And even to the extent that you'd walk into a field and it's not unknown to buy a crop standing in the field. Yeah. When you had to estimate the yield and the quality you were going to get when it was still waiting to be combined. Yeah. And uh, that was a skill that I don't think I fully had. No, I, I don't think I ever stretched that far because I did buy a standing crop of someone a few years ago via a chap called Ron Goodwin who worked for me as an agent for a little while. And, and miraculously, the price had gone up and this guy's yield dropped by the, you know, dropped by the day. Yeah. We ended up with a lot, lot less than what we thought we'd bought. And it, it, there's no two ways about it. He'd just sold a couple of loads away. Yeah. Which is fine. Yes, well, it's like yes. live and learn. I don't know the top loads away, but um, you can't... The difficulty was estimating how much the rabbits had eaten at the top end of the field. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, yes. I've I mean, got to tell you a story about a rabbit, actually. Richard Wake told me this story yeah. years ago. He said there was a, a load of barley that was taken to a maltings, and on, on the delivery there was a rabbit dropping found in the sample, and the load was rejected for the rabbit dropping. But the, So the phone call back to the farmer said, right, you know, you got rabbit dropping, I'm afraid it's been rejected. And the farmer said, never had a rabbit on the farm. <laughs> <laughs> And I just died. Never mind. Yeah, I know. Yes. <laughs> you think about that. Anyway. It's fairly difficult to explain to farmers sometimes the many reasons for which loads <laughs> oh, can be rejected. Yeah. And um, Total misery for everybody. Yeah. And they think there's some form of uh, conspiracy going on to do them down. Believe me, if every load went straight in without any form of phone call, life would be infinitely oh, yeah. easier, wouldn't it? And like a lot road, less stressful. I mean, recently, or last year or sometime, a load was rejected from Stowe Market for having a live mouse on it. Right. <laughs> And then the mouse got off, ran down the road, and they went, he's not there anymore. Well, he's been on there, isn't he? I've heard that story. Um, The the reasons for rejection are numerous. And um, they were even more numerous in the days of Saxon things. Really? Yes, I think as things were a little more primitive. I mean, uh, we had uh, one farm, I know, was also a slaughterhouse. Mm -hmm. And there was a sort of an admixture of... um, Oh, no. You know, it, 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 it wasn't a pleasant job going to sample there either oh. um, because there would be the odd carcass laying about the place. Lovely. Those sort of things were an experience which you don't wish to repeat too no, often. Too well, and, and yeah. now we know more about germs uh, and, and how, you know, yeah. the, the, the uh, dynamic of that carcass. And the farmers who let their farmyard chickens roam everywhere, including mm. over the heaps of grain which you were trying to sample. Uh, uh, you know how many times has you know some farmers' dogs used the grain as a toilet? Yes. You know, we've, well, yeah. the chickens did certainly. And then they go, "All right, I'll flick it out before I load the lorry." Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's great. Good. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it, we had to be fairly broad-shouldered, really. <clears throat> yeah, but it's you know at the times ACCS, the Farm Assurance Scheme, has educated a large amount of people, and there is a much much tighter, more aware. Oh yeah. You know, we're definitely a more professional industry, and there isn't the, the kind of loose, uh, we'll call it wild country ways about it. It is yeah. much more... Um, there, were, it, there were some strange characters farming. There uh, certainly were. Yeah. There were villages that seemed particularly remote from humanity like Defham. Yeah. Although I actually had a very good friend who farmed at Defham.
from Alan Phoenix. I remember, oh, he was a very good friend, but there were other farmers in that area who would be amongst the primitives, I think. <laughs> well, yeah, we could uh, we could talk about Six Fingers and Norfolk, but no. <clears throat> so let's stick to let's stick to the grain trade. So you, because at some point you became a broker, didn't you? Yes. So when did you make that step? When <clears throat> I closed Waring and or Jeremy Savage Grain, actually, because it. I bought him out and you, yes, you were on I your own. I wasn't part of Waring's anymore. So I decided that the industry needed a malting barley broker mm-hmm. because at that stage, nobody broke malting barley. People broke milling wheat and, and feed wheat and feed barley, but not malting barley. Mm. It was regarded as the gentleman's preserve. Mm-hmm. So you had some opposition in the first place, didn't you? Uh, yes. When I started as a malting barley broker, the more leading lights in the malting barley industry, like Michael Banks and Richard Johnson, who's a very good friend, mm. were not in favour. Mm. They felt that that was um, sort of uh, less than dignified to <laughs> broke malting barley because it was an art more than a business. Mm. Um, and there were others, I suppose, but didn't take long when they realised that there were times when they needed somebody who knew more bit well, about I- the market they didn't know. Yeah, and every nobody knows everything. So there's always a, char- a nook and a cranny where you can help people yeah. um, by knowing that uh, there's a short there or there's a yeah. There's, a, there's sometimes there's a burden. You're stuck with something. Someone wants to move it, and your mulch is broken down, and you you really yeah. do need to help the farmer to get it moved. Yeah, and yeah. Yeah, you need to know every you can't phone everybody every day, no. can you? And it is that specialist knowledge that the the malting barley broker um, excels in, where people are shipping it when there's a big shipping year, all sorts of specialist requirements that and you or you may know that uh, a particular maltster has got a requirement quietly for something special mm. um, which you keep an eye open for yeah and it gets so people talk to you on a daily basis because they want to know the broad spectrum of where the markets are and uh, you try and help people as far as possible it is often a matter of helping people Mm. You know, where you can get a bit of a fallback, uh, for instance, if you're dealing with Max 165 for distilling, yeah. and um, there's one person who will give you a fallback to 17, that might just help a marginal sample trade. Yeah, things like that make a, make a difference to taking the risk. I mean, lots of the grain trade do avoid malting barley like the plague, don't they? Oh, yes. I mean, a, a lot of people are sort of frightened of trading malting barley. Because it's the it, dark arts. It is the, well, the it mysterious is. muck and mystery world. And, um, you know, people um, find it difficult, really. Mm. And, of course, it can be difficult because maltsters can be quite pernickety uh, or they seem to have very... You've got to understand each maltings and one maltings which will accept a variation of one sort and um, be totally, you know, dog in the manger about something else. We'll call them partisans, shall we? I mean, everyone has their favourites. Yeah. You know, going back in time, my youth, I worked for a bulker and therefore we were kind of not really encouraged by the local monsters because effectively yeah. you were competing with them. So it wasn't um, a marriage made in heaven. Then when yeah. I turned up with some samples, they were going to treat me less. F- famous characters like Paul Northam. Mm. who, if the market was going altering in some way, he might ring me up and say, uh, Jeremy, you got any malting barley you're stuck with? Because uh, that was the hint. I'd go and see him and say, yes, I've got one or two lots, Paul. And then you'd say, um, I've got a bit of marisota with some wheat in, just a touch of wheat. Oh, he said, that doesn't worry me, that improves it. And, uh, and you could always sell that you heard it here first. to Paul, where you couldn't sell it to other people who were... Yeah. Those who are looking to find a fault and those who are looking to help you. Absolutely. You know, you're going to end up with customers who don't get the grief if you go, if you know the homes to go to with, without yeah. the grief. Yeah. You end up with deliveries without claims and, and you it, end up often with... Often the skill, you're helping a farmer who's got something a bit marginal, slightly dodgy. Yeah. If you choose the right maltings, you can get away Seamless. with it. 
deliveries um, without that awful rejection. Yeah, I mean, the, the worst thing, the, the sort of daily bugbear is ringing farmers up and saying, your load's been rejected. And uh, the farmer would be protesting complete innocence of any wrongdoing. Mm. And you'd know that you've got a cost involved and somehow you couldn't take that. I mean, when you make mm. a couple of pounds a ton on something, you can't take a cost of £10 a ton. No. Uh, because you'll be soon out Well, they all think you're making £20 a ton, don't they? Yeah. Farmers. Yeah, they all do, yes. And it's like, oh, Everyone thinks it's... Um, a couple of years of that, I'll be fine. Yeah. So as, as a broker in the modern industry, there's less and less people. You know, where do you see the industry going? I mean, we've got less and less players, and as we go into the future, there'll be less and less farmers. Well, it appears that one of the trends that's developing is the forward contract price to be agreed, which is taking the barley off the market. Mm-hmm. And it's a negotiation between the person you've sold to and the maltster hmm. or maltsters. And so there is less and less free trade malting barley about. And more and more maltsters are getting into this business of having long-term contracts, price to be agreed, supply agreements. Um, who's the strength in the hands of? The merchant who's got the contract with the maltster or the maltster because he pick and chooses the, the merchant? It'll vary with seasons, but... Uh, in a season when you've got a lot of good grade, good stuff, and the market gets a bit dull because people don't want anything, then the merchant who's got supply agreements forward has got a very key position mm. because he knows he's got sales ahead, mm. whereas the merchant who's just trading what he can buy now will find that the maltsters, oh, I'm fully covered, I'm fully covered. And uh, suddenly you find you can't sell anything but the, until there's an export trade. But there's a um, set of maltsters who are fly-by-nights in a sense. They're, they're price, you know, orientated. Yeah. And they don't focus upon those sorts of supply contracts. They just think, now, I'll take a view on this. Yeah. There's not going to be much of it. We'll buy it. Yeah. Or there's going to be too much of it, we won't buy it. Yeah. And then they expect you to have lots come oh, the yes. time. It varies terribly. Yeah. I mean, you get maltsters who will ring somebody like me up and say, look, I'm looking for a bit of low nitrogen craft, say, winter barley. Not very easy to find, but can you find me some? Then you're in a position to negotiate because mm. usually it's fairly scarce. And when you find it, you're in the key position in dictating what the price is going to be because mm. the maltster wants what you've got. Yeah. And you've got to say what you need for it. Mm, and out of fiver, yeah. Yeah. So the, yeah. the, the negotiation strength is that it's Those dependent moments. on who really wants something against who somebody who's actually got it and you can't find it elsewhere. But there's going to be less malting barley grown, I yeah. think. And therefore it's going to get to a very fine balance S&D. Yeah. And one of the things that we don't always take on board, and dear old UK is the fact there's a world market. Mm. For instance, some of our maltings have got branches abroad, so they're well aware of what the world supply and demand is. And, of course, the world supply and demand is moving, mm. so Australia is taking a much bigger part in the supply because a lot of the demand is now in the Far East, mm -hmm. Probably not so high quality, not the sort of specialist pale ale. No, you're not going to get your lovely, you know, specialist brewery beers from an Aussie, yeah. Aussie copper barley, and, are um, you? You have to remember that it's possible to brew beer out of some very strange things. <laughs> Indeed. Um, and so you get beer produced with wheat or maize mm. and even oat malt. Yeah. You know, there are things that are completely new to us are going on, and particularly in the Far East. I mean, the Chinese potential is enormous. If every Chinaman drank a pint of beer a week, uh, we'd be extremely wealthy. 
Mm. Well, someone who grows Montmorency barley be extremely wealthy, and we would if we'd gone flat long of it and said, you know, all right, mate, you can have some for yeah. this much. But yeah, no, absolutely, consumption potential in in the parts of the world. It's a, yeah, you're right. It's enormous. Yeah, it is. So this is what's changing the way the trade's going. Export demand is becoming important. Um, well, we have a bit of an issue with Brexit, don't we? Yes. Which we, we don't know the answer to yet. No, we don't. It looks like we're getting um, closer to some sort of answer. We've but... been big suppliers to the European market. Well, we hope that's going to be the case ongoing, don't we? But it may be that we will be competing with Australia in the Japanese and the Far Eastern market. Mm-hmm. Uh, and China, I noticed that some of the big maltsters have got representatives touring the Far East. Some countries that you don't, don't even think of in terms of beer, like Myanmar, Vietnam, Cambodia, our big maltsters have representatives trying to sell malt over there. Yeah, absolutely. The, the easiest thing in the world would be if we could just maintain some form of contact to the local market in Europe, wouldn't it? Yeah, if you could yeah. sell stuff to Germany ongoing, yeah. it would solve a lot of well, misery. it's more akin to our tradition. Yeah, that's right. And we understand each other a lot better. Indeed. Um, when you go and speak to the Chinese, they're thinking what they can make beer out of, which <laughs> might be somewhat different to what our ideas are. Well, and, and it's very, very big vessels, which limits where it comes from, doesn't it? You can't yeah. get a, a boat out of Lowestoft going to little ones. Well, yes, that's the problem. I mean, Southampton, um, London, Tilbury, Tilbury mm. Immingham are probably the only ports that can yeah. export in the sort of quantities that go to the Far East. Yeah. Right. Jeremy, do you think you were in, lived in the right time in the grain trade? Did, was it the best time? I think it was a very good time. It's difficult to say it was the best time. I believe those gentlemen who, in the 1930s, who were regarded as gentlemen traders and really were dictators and treated farmers like something that had been deposited on their shoe mm-hmm. and um, in their turn were treated rather badly by the maltsters, but they were able to make a very big margin between the farm and the maltster when times arrived. So perhaps that was the best time to be... Probably... That period, and during the war years, when everybody wanted everything they could lay their hands on, it didn't matter as long as it was grain, you could make a profit. I do remember as a young boy, aged about 12 or 13, selling to uh, Barnards of Newport uh, 2,500 weight of garlic seed, adder of grain, because it had come out of our grain, but it was used for bird food. And uh, you could sell virtually anything in those days when I was that age. Anything to do with grain could be sold. And, of course, as birdseed was not on the rationing and therefore was sort of a, almost below the counter, um, anything that would go into a birdseed sample could be sold. All right, so there's lots of birdseed sales that didn't actually see anywhere a bird nearby. <laughs> no, right, OK. I think, Jeremy, I think with that we're going to continue our conversation in a minute, but we're going to have a little sip of this coffee. So, Jeremy, yeah. thank you very much for your time on that. And, you know, that section one, I might even... We've been talking for such a long time, I might even cut you into three episodes, which is the biggest record <laughs> okay. we've had. So, Jeremy, thank you very much for your time on that. Thank this you morning. very much. Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe to get new episodes as they are released and follow us on Twitter. We are at Dewing Grain. Call Dewing Grain on 01263 731 or email info at The Dewing Grain podcast is produced by East Coast Design Studio in Norwich. <laughs>